Welcome, everyone listening in to From Our Vantage Point, Vantage Point's podcast recorded on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, where we talk all things not-for-profit related. I am Maria Turnbull at Vantage Point and the From Our Vantage Point host today. Before we jump in, I'd like to introduce you to our guests for this episode, Roy Pogorzelski and Carol Robinson from Harbor West Consulting. Roy is Métis from Saskatchewan, and his family comes from the communities of Green Lake, Meadow Lake, and Batoche in the north. Roy spent four years with the City of Lethbridge as the inclusion consultant, representing the Canadian Coalition of Municipalities Against Racism and Discrimination Initiative, and the vibrant Lethbridge's Poverty Reduction Initiatives. Roy also co-chaired the Reconciliation Subcommittee and was instrumental in the creation of a reconciliation implementation plan in 2017 for the City of Lethbridge in response to the TRC calls to action. Roy has worked across sectors as a consultant. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Indigenous Studies, a Bachelor of Human Justice, and a Master's of Science in Cultures and Development Studies. Currently, Roy is an associate with the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion, a facilitator with One Voice, One Team, and a senior Indigenous consultant with Harbour West Consulting. All this while working on his PhD at the University of Lethbridge, where he is also a sessional instructor for the Dillon School of Business and Indigenous Studies faculties. Moving on to Carol, Carol Robinson is the principal and founder of Harbour West Consulting. Carol began her career at an international executive search firm before leading the board resourcing and development office for the BC Provincial Government's Office of the Premier, where she identified numerous candidates and conducted board governance training for multi-level provincial agencies, crown corporations, and post-secondary institution boards. In 2008, Carol became a founding equity partner of Harbour West Consulting, working with organizations throughout BC and across Canada. In 2017, Carol expanded Harbour West Services to provide holistic recruitment and human resources consulting. We often here at Vantage Point refer over to Harbour West because of their great work with the sector. Carol continues to hold a national uh, search and consulting practice and is a sought-after public speaker both locally and internationally on public and not-for-profit sector recruitment and governance best practices. Carol currently serves as Vice Chair of Big Sisters of BC Lower Mainland, Additionally, she serves on the Association of Executive Search Consultants, Council of Americas, and Carol is former board member of the Lower Lonsdale Shipyards District BIA, the College of Midwives of British Columbia, and the College of Registered Psychiatric Nurses of BC. Lastly, in 2018, Carol was a YWCA Women of Distinction in Entrepreneurship and Innovation and Vuv Clico New Generation Award finalist and in 2020 received the Big Sisters of BC Lower Mainland Big Heart Award. Without further ado, let's head over to the conversation. Welcome, Roy and Carol, uh, to today's podcast, Reconciliation in the Workplace. Welcome both. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Maria. Thank you so much, Maria. To get us started, um, I wanted to start with you, Carol. If you could tell us a bit about how you and Harbour West first connected with Roy. 
Well, um, it's, a, it's a great question. So about, oh, I think it would be almost two years ago, I was taking a course at the Canadian Centre for Diversity and Inclusion uh, with a colleague of mine and some of our own internal training. And Roy ended up facilitating a module for the course. And I think actually in the course during the session, I sent a side DM to my colleague saying very simply, we need to work with Roy. I think I just knew it. I knew it in my gut. Uh, he has such incredible warmth, knowledge, engagement, and there was just such a values alignment with how he was sharing his knowledge with what we want to do at Harbor West. I think even weeks within completing that course, I reached out to Roy directly with pretty much that same messaging. We need to work together, Roy. And we came together and it was the fit that I think I know I dreamt of um, and has con continued to be for us at Harbor West, um, just such magic working with Roy. Thanks, Carol. And, and Roy, from your perspective, kind of what's this early journey uh, with Harbor West been all about for you? Yeah, it's it's been a fantastic opportunity, not only, you know, for me to offer some of my knowledge to the organization, but also from the knowledge that I'm gaining from the organization and all the, the wonderful, amazing folks that make up Harbor West. It's been a great kind of uh, transfer of knowledge and sharing, especially when we talk about human resources, when we talk about recruiting, when we talk about placing candidates, when we talk talk about, you know, offering supports, you know, so that candidates can have the best success when they're placed into a new organization, especially when it comes to areas of truth and reconciliation. And with organizations, you know, trying to move forward in this work, they want the best knowledge possible and available to do this important work. So uh, from my perspective, it's it's been a really great opportunity. And, and I really do like working uh, alongside human resources. I think it's a really great place to make important changes in organizations. Thanks, Roy. And, you know, obviously, uh, you inspired Carol <laughs> from the get go, I guess. And in preparing for this podcast, Roy, you shared with me your passion for really inspiring leaders in, in this journey of truth and reconciliation, but with that particular kind of emphasis of in the workplace. Um, yeah, tell, tell me, tell us, tell our listeners more uh, about what gets you going in this area. Well, you know, when I was when I was younger and I was growing up, I was always inspired by uh, my elders and my knowledge keepers, most particularly my grandma. Uh, you know, she shared so much knowledge with me. And so when I was growing up, I always looked for mentors. I always looked for inspiring people that could assist me on my journey because my journey through education, for example, uh, was was a difficult one because my mom has what would be a grade eight education because of the residential day schools. My grandma had about a grade six education. Many of my aunties had similar education. And so there wasn't much of an emphasis for me to even go through or get through high school. So I looked up to mentors in a very important way, when I went to university in my undergrad and I saw these indigenous activists and academics and scholars, and I just looked up to them and said, oh, my God, I want to be that one day. Like, I don't care what it takes. That's what I want to do. I want to be inspiring like that. I want to be someone who spends their life learning and and really goes on this journey towards knowledge that's a bit more profound. And so when I started going into the workplace, when I moved to Blackfoot Territory, uh, here with the, uh, in, in uh, Blackfoot Confederacy Territory, Kainai, Begani, uh, and Siksika Nations and, and Métis Nation Region 3, when I came to this area, um, I started in the nonprofit sector. 
And I started in a place of mediating concerns around human rights in the workplace or in, you know, in the community and society. And so this wasn't human rights uh, commission work. This wasn't labor relations. This was simply validating concerns that were real and bringing a mediation to them. And from that moment, I realized that there was a lot of need for that type of education and information, not only about Indigenous inclusion, but also about even human rights legislation within the workplace. You know, this was about 2009. And so, you know, to get to the question, you know, really... Um, it's been kind of a life passion of mine to inspire others the way I've been inspired, you know, to share the knowledge I've gained over the years with humility to others and recognize that everyone has their own knowledge, wisdom, lived experience and perspective that they bring to this work. So how do we harness the energy from both of our equitable outlooks on life to create a shared vision for leaders to make the best possible, you know, changes and move to a place of action? And, and, and model the way for their employees and their colleagues. And so it really comes down to just reminding leaders that it's okay to not know everything, that you need to be highly reflective in your role as a leader. And through that reflection of your own kind of experience and where you've come to be, you can actually inspire that shared vision with your colleagues when you're open, authentic to, you know, having conversation, you can inspire a shared vision, you can model the way you can lead with passion. And so it just became something that I became really excited about, because I love because I'll tell you in the work and truth and reconciliation that I've done, and been a part of, it's been the work of leaders that have really pushed this work and been, you know, paramount to the work moving forward. And so you always try to inspire leaders that you can do this. You know, you can be a scholar as an ally, you can amplify voices, you can advocate, and you can realize that don't, you know, don't worry about the end game, you know, be on the journey, lean into the journey, and and really just start to learn yourself. And I think that's, that's, that's what I love about working with leaders. Thanks so much, Roy. Um, Carol, curious if anything Roy has shared here, uh, modeling the way that uh, sort of unique role that perhaps leaders can step into. How have you seen this in in your practice and your work, Carol? Yeah, I mean, I think you just nailed what you would ideally be as a consultant to organizations anyways never mind in this type of work. Like that's exactly what we want to do is lean in as leaders, be open to learning along the way, but also be confident enough to help set the path and move the dial forward, which I think is, you know, so much what we want to do in our own practice as we support our clients, especially within this space and this work. I think what we're seeing in terms of our clients that are doing this are people that are actually, you know, having real conversations bringing in experts when they know that they may not be the experts because they're humble enough to engage others and learn collaboratively to move things forward. And then, you know, I think we've come a long way from just planning to now seeing sort of actionable items taking place in organizations. So that could be from anything in terms of how we rewrite our job descriptions in our work or how we might do preferential hiring or how we might even build out what would have been traditional organizational hierarchy uh, and challenge our thinking about organizational design. Um, So I think we're seeing it right across the work that we do and within the services that we provide at Harbor West. 
Thanks, Carol. So speaking of action, I, I took action before the podcast to sort of reach out to my, our community here within Vantage Point's workplace. So I asked our staff what questions they would have related to um, our organizational effort to advance the 10 truth and reconciliation principles that are outlined in the TRC's final report. And here's one that came up. Um, so I'll put this out. You know, if we talk about action, um, we talk about humility in particular, but when we're working with organizations and, and looking to begin to build relations with Indigenous communities, how can we do that as leaders who are often non-Indigenous, may not have those, those relationships? How can we begin to build those relations in a good, a respectful, non-performative, non-exploitative way, and one that kind of sets us up for, for that strength of relationship uh, to endure? Thoughts or comments here, Roy? Yeah, and that, and that's an excellent question, Maria. And I think, you know, first and foremost, before we kind of enter the conversation of what of you know how we can advance this and and build those relationships, we need to recognize that Indigenous knowledge in our country has has never been a privileged point of knowledge. We've always privileged the written word over oral knowledge or oral sharing of knowledge. And so within many of our organizations, within many of our workplaces, you know, without even thinking about it, almost as unconscious bias surfaces, our our institutions, our structures, our systems have been influenced by this idea that if it's written, it's truth. And, you know, we see that in kind of the, you know, the, the Western scientific method. You know, if I have a hypothesis about someone, I run it through the scientific method, you know, it comes out, it agrees with my hypothesis, I publish it, it becomes truth about the world, and we call it scientific truth. Indigenous knowledge has always been seen at time of contact as being lesser knowledge, as being unreliable, as being deemed inadmissible, unscientific, you know, all the words and never incorporated in the work that we've done. I think the relationship piece starts at the recognition and the importance that Indigenous knowledge, knowledge that surfaces from the land and the connection to our areas and territories is foundational knowledge for organizations. When we lean on ecological knowledge or Indigenous knowledge and we allow for it to come into our organizations, we offer an avenue to build relationships, to understand a different way of seeing the world. You know, further to that, if you look at the TRC called to action and you look at call to action 92 it's focused on the business community but it's really applicable to nonprofit and really any organization out there they talk about meaningful consultation they don't talk about build something which has traditionally been done we build it in-house we go to the neighboring nation or an indigenous organization and we say hey look what we've done do you buy in do you support what we've created for you and that's never really been a successful model for you know working together or collaborating Instead, when we talk about meaningful consultation and meaningful relationships, we're talking about the co-creation of inception of idea. It's coming together to invite Indigenous knowledge into the how we co-create programming, how we co-create job descriptions, how we co-create policies, practices, procedures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That becomes so vital to that. So further to that is as leaders, as workers within the nonprofit sector or the business sector or what have you, we need to start learning about protocol. If we're going to build relationships and we don't know 
protocol on how to, you know, engage with an elder, how to uh, reach out to a community, you know, it starts at that point, that very simple piece of learning, and it can be through experiential exercises we've taken on, like blanket exercises, it could be, you know, actually going and reaching out and engaging with, you know, an organization or, or going to an event like a powwow that's happening and, and actually engage and be a part of that and, and really participate, actively participate. And then all of that kind of educates itself when we just allow ourselves to be vulnerable. And I don't see vulnerability as a weakness. I see it as an absolute strength in leaders and in people. Um, you know, we allow ourselves to be authentic and open to accepting that, that, you know, our truth about the world is not the only truth about the world, that there's multiple perspectives, multiple realities, multiple experiences. And, and we got to open our heart from it from a place of empathy and open-mindedness and kindness to allow for those relationships to really start to surface. Thanks, Roy. Carolyn, your work, um, sort of either examples or sort of moments with leaders that are anything that comes to mind uh, where you've seen that authenticity lead to those, those positive and good relations, anything that comes to mind for you, Carol? I think with this work, often we are sort of hungry to sort of make tangible change that we can relate to. And that applies more to processes or systems, or I said, job descriptions, policies, all those sort of brass tacks items that make us feel that we're moving towards, you know, actioning, which is what we do want to do. But we have to sort of ground ourselves that, as Roy said, that this is first and foremost about people. And then from people, we think about that co-creation, which would then best inspire those policies, processes, and systems. And so sometimes with our leaders, it's about kind of taking it back to the basics. It's about introducing our team. It's about making connections with people with lived experience to sort of ground why we're doing the work that we're doing. And then on the flip side, I think for people that are perhaps, you know, really active in this work, it's about holding space for people that are coming along in their journey, but may not be where you're at. So sometimes you might, you know, be sort of further along or further steps ahead or have knowledge that can allow you to move at a different pace. But knowing that each organization is going to have to approach this differently and you have to hold space for that and you have to hold space for the time that they need to potentially get there that best meets the organization to set it up for success. So that's really, I think, what we're seeing mainly is how do you tailor that to whom you're working with and how do you really ground that in sincere, real relationships about people first and foremost? Thanks for that, Carol. Yeah, the um, I was looking at um, sort of this question I have around uh, whether you can identify any common pitfalls that organizations or workplaces experience in this. Um, and I'm kind of assuming that I can think of my own experiences, sort of the making an assumption that the people on the team or within the community are at the same place of learning on the journey, uh, that that could be a really you know, that can be a challenge if that assumption is made in that what may, what someone may need to support their, their understanding and, and their learning and their ability to open up to the, the, the many different truths, as you talked about, Roy. Um, I could see that being one of the, the pitfalls, certainly. Um, I don't know if that one resonates for you, Roy, or other pitfalls or challenges that you've seen um, that our listeners might learn, learn from those and, and perhaps not repeat those mistakes. <laughs> Yeah. And I think uh, Carol brought up a, an extremely important point, you know, like when we're working 
in truth and reconciliation, when when folks are engaging whatever part of the journey towards knowing that they're on, you know, when we are engaging in that way, there can't be rushed timelines or fixed timelines. I've worked in organizations in leadership areas where someone's like, we need this by next month. So engage, consult, gather data, and then produce. And it's like, whoa, you know, that is just, that's a fixed timeline that's unrealistic and puts people in the workplace in a very difficult position because you're outward facing to the community. If you're an Indigenous employee, you're outward facing to the community and you're being set up by your organization in a very difficult situation to go to elders, go to community members, you know, say, please share all your, you know, all your knowledge with me, all your intellectual property, and I'm going to quickly feed it over to the organization. When we rush timelines, we, we create many, many challenges because there's no fixed end to truth and reconciliation. And, and certainly there's no, you know, there's no fixed end to knowledge there. You won't ever just be at a point where like, I know everything. So I'm done. You know, I've, I've reached everything all knowing it's just not a possibility. So in this, you know, we have to be very mindful of that further pitfalls I've noticed is when people uh, use the terminology around indigenous, Aboriginal, first nations, you know, Métis or Inuit or however they, use that and they homogenize or generalize you know the entire group of people not recognizing we have 640 first nations across this country as i mentioned we have a large diversity across this country inuit communities across the circumpolar north acknowledgement statements become vital in this because we learn about the storied history of the land of that nation's knowledge connection to the land and we learn about them being as stewards of this land since time immemorial or time in memory so you know based on on what we know there we have to be mindful not to say you're the spokesperson for all indigenous people, you know, tell us what to do, or you're the only one who can approach elders because you're indigenous. You know, I moved from uh, Saskatchewan where there's Cree, Soto, Métis, you know, more into my cultural element. I moved to Blackfoot territory just because I'm Métis does not mean there's relational connections. Um, You know, we are nations that are so vastly different from one another. And I had to build relationships much as anybody would. So there's no cookie cutter approach to truth and reconciliation. There's simply knowing where you're at, like Carol had mentioned, knowing where your organization's at, knowing your readiness, and knowing where the community's at in order to kind of start to advance this work. One thing that I'm going to just mention uh, before I, I pass it over is one thing that we've always known in this world is that diversity is a fact. It's been a fact ever since you get two humans in a room, you've got human diversity, you've got diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, you've got diversity dimensions that we all have that make us uniquely who we are. We know that's a fact, but inclusion has always been a choice. It's been the choice of leaders. It's been the choice of colleagues. It's been the choice of people to ensure a space, you know, that allows for the meaningful participation, regardless of your background, culture, way of life, ability, or source of income. You can be in that space and feel like you can meaningfully participate and innovate in that space. Much like that, truth and reconciliation is also a choice. It's the choice of people to be passionate about it, to want to change and move to reconciliation. You know, as the TRC boldly claims that we need to 
to move from intention to action. So in that moment, we as people are making the choice, whether we're leaders in an organization, whether we're colleagues in an organization, employees, what have you, it's our conscious choice to be a part of advancing truth and reconciliation in our personal lives, in our community lives, the way we provide service, and also in our, our professional lives. Thanks, Roy. Um, I'm I'm sitting with that for a minute, the fact versus choice. Um, thank you for kind of giving that anchor to it. It uh, feels really important. Let's just take a break for a moment. Uh, we'll be right back into the conversation. From Our Vantage Point is brought to you by Humanity Financial Management, a chartered professional accounting firm dedicated to supporting Canadian nation builders and movement makers in social sector organizations, social purpose businesses, and Indigenous communities and organizations. The humanitarians on our team work with our client partners to shift the balance of power through finance in advance of our shared goals, to transform this land into the most environmentally, socially, and economically equitable place on earth. Visit Humanity Financial Management online at humanityfinancial.ca. Welcoming you both back. Uh, when I get a little bit nitty gritty here, I am sort of carry Vantage Point's commitment to practical learning for our leaders and, and things that we can really equip people. That uh, notion of reconciliation uh, that you just mentioned, Roy. So we see lots of job descriptions, um, invitations, even appeals to Indigenous leaders to, to join our not-for-profit teams. Uh, Carol, I'll direct this question toward you. Um, how do we set our uh, Indigenous leaders up for success as they join a team or take on a leadership role in a team and a team that's still learning about all that it takes to to really support reconciliation in the workplace? That's such a good question. And I think it really does start way before the hire is even made. So what is the work being done by the organization leading up to that hire that may be independent to it or inspired or informed by it uh, so that as, you know, HR, recruiters, hiring managers, or whomever may be meeting with potential candidates can really clearly articulate what the organization has to offer and what it has done to be prepared to set up candidates for success, especially um, and often in very complex leadership positions. And that may look like onboarding plans, reconciliation plans internally uh, that then flow into, as you would say, the nitty gritty of things like hiring onboarding, retention, um, and some of the day-to-day work. I also think about how we write our materials, how we articulate positions. What we often see in roles where organizations are looking to make an Indigenous hire is they put every possible touch point that someone who might be Indigenous in terms of their leadership capacity, lived experience, and knowledge could touch on within an organization, and it would be absolutely insurmountable and often have nothing to do with the role being hired for. So being really, really clear about who you are hiring you know, for in terms of the position itself, because we see job descriptions, and maybe Roy, you can chime in here, that seem to put everything into one position where you wouldn't see that in any other type of role in the organization. And the weight that that puts on those candidates or hires does not set up anybody for success when it should be potentially a team that's doing this, an organization that is doing this work. It can be quite surprising to us, but also part of the journey as we learn to sort of unpack these roles and make sure that people are, are set up, as I mentioned, for success. 
Thanks, Carol. Yeah, Roy, uh, anything to comment here? Yeah, no, I think uh, I think Carol, you know, really did justice to that question. And, and the only thing I could really add to it, and, you know, as she mentioned, organizations, you know, need to realize that they have to put budget towards, you know, creating real change. Uh, like Carol had mentioned, if you hire one person to be the spokesperson for all Indigenous peoples and take the weight of the world of truth and reconciliation on their shoulders, of being a liaison to the Indigenous community and nations, you know, especially if they're an Indigenous person not from that particular area, there's still a relationship component. They're not, they don't come in and they're not the subject matter experts of that area. And when Indigenous people go into the workplace, one of the biggest challenges, and, and oftentimes say we go into there in a leadership role, is you, there's no kind of templated piece to the, to how they're going to do the work because oftentimes organizations haven't done the work themselves to learn Indigenous inclusion or take, you know, courses or certification training on, on Indigenous people. So when this individual who's in a leadership position has, you know, staff looking kind of up to in their direction needs support themselves, it's oftentimes not in the support of how do we advance truth and reconciliation. It's more of in the support of like, you know, hey, uh, we don't really know what you're doing or what's going on, but we're here for you, you know, and it, and it's just, it's so difficult because you need colleagues that are pushing the work. You need action people that are willing to, you know, get dirty, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, get their hands into the process and work alongside you, you know, be a co-conspirator of this work and really not only allow that person to take all the pitfalls, all you know the 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 you know the difference of opinion that person shoulders that entire burden of trying to justify just to, just why we're doing it this way or how we're going about you know connecting with people yeah and it strikes me carol as you started out you know in a way similar to the work i know we're talking about hr sort of the the paid elements are our, our, our labor force within workforce but uh, our boards of directors of not-for-profits uh, really kind of the same dynamic here that you know several years ago we started organ organizations started approaching us about what steps uh, could they should they take uh, in in building more diverse uh, boards and in fact you know the um, and could we share uh, an example rule description, for example, to attract a diverse board member. And, you know, it wasn't long before, you know, it was a pretty quick assessment of, you know, that, that, that step is, is much later on in the process uh, that, in fact, in order to build uh, an environment where uh, whether it's Indigenous board members or, or others that may be, will be successful on those boards, within those staff teams and so on, it's creating those that strength of knowledge and learning, at least getting people supporting many to get further along in the journey themselves uh, before then um, working alongside and, and working really effectively with, with a really diverse team. Uh, Roy, uh, please. Yeah, you know, just to kind of go off that, and, and it's an excellent example. I think both me and Carol have sat on many uh, nonprofit boards in, in the work that we've done. And I always hear that as well, Maria, you know, how do we get more 
diversity on our boards. Well, he, here it is. You have diversity on the boards because you have 12 people that are not the same. They're not a monolith of people. They have diverse dimensions that make them uniquely who they are. What what they're really talking about is representation, one subset of diversity where they're saying, we don't have Indigenous people at this board. How do we bring the Indigenous voice to the table? You know, we don't have racialized individuals on the board or people with differing abilities on the board or an intersection of all you know that's what people are really trying to refer to is how do we get the voice of individuals and and then one of the biases we get into is this notion that racialized or indigenous peoples are are underrepresented you know this this idea that you know we're bringing in their voice because we kind of need it or these type of things but at the end of the day it should just be part of the culture of how we do business you know it should be part of you know not so much there should be intentional efforts but it should be a part of just Eventually in the future, how it's not seen as a subset of diversity, but really is just part of what makes the diversity, uh, human diversity of all of us. I hope that made sense. Yeah, absolutely, Roy. Carol? And then I would just close. You do all this work in terms of setting the groundwork, actioning the engagement of this leadership group, but then maybe most importantly is how do you retain those individuals. And that sort of loops back to, you know, it's really quite a circle. If you've done that foundational work, the, you know, the individuals that come on board should then also be set up with those same tools for success. And one thing that Roy, I think, does very well and sees huge opportunities for is sort of coaching of those individuals to integrate into organizations and, and the need to sometimes have a, a sort of a, a third party or an outside ear that you can turn to because I think as we mentioned before, these roles can often seem overwhelming, isolating at times, and you can often be, you know, really changing the course of an organization, as we mentioned, which can put huge weight on the shoulders of these leaders. So, you know, we would really recommend as much as sort of that onboarding plan is having a retention plan in place as well that really integrates everything that led up to the higher uh, in the first place. Mm. And just to probe a little bit there in terms of that coaching and mentorship as part of the retention plan, what does that look like in practical terms? Is that a professional coach, for example? Is it, yeah, and could um, one of you hop in on that, Roy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd love to come in. And I think, you know, Carol spoke beautifully to that, you know, and I think it's the opportunity. And I just think of my own role when I was Director of Indigenous Student Affairs at the University of Lethbridge. You know, there was no one that I could talk to outside of my support system. And you as a leader do not want to get into a situation where your staff become your, you know, those that are listening to you, your confidants. You don't want to get into that position that can get very you know, it can become very unsettling quite quickly, right? You know, so having someone external that has an understanding of the the territory, the knowledge, has an understanding of Indigenous studies, you know, as an actual, like, degree program and theoretical framework offers you an external support that you can go to. Now I could see on the other flip side where organizations could see this as a threat potentially because they have someone external that they get to talk to about, you know, instances. But again, if you're at that place in your organization, you got to deal with that first and foremost, because all this is, is offering 
having an external support to someone where they can call you up, set an hour in a week and say, hey, Roy, you know, I've had these come up in your experience. What have you done? You know, is there anything I can do differently? What do you think? And then you could offer someone support in that way. So in a way, I wouldn't say I wouldn't place it into the construction of like a job coach per se. What I would say is, is it's an external support, you know, someone that is there to validate, listen, you know, you know, and really share back from an experiential perspective of some of the things we do. And I can think of municipalities as a perfect place to start with that because from my experience, not a lot of uh, indigenous people really understand the inner workings of the municipality. And that, and that's a bit of an overrise generalization. There are definitely those that have worked in municipalities, but what I'm saying is, is that it, Indigenous liaison positions in municipalities are new. Um, you know, Indigenous city councillors, you see a few, but not too many. And usually in bigger centers where there's a larger emphasis, you know, on, you know, kind of inclusion, equity, diversity, accessibility. So in these spaces, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting learning tool because when you go into the municipality and you're the indigenous liaison person, you got to take on that entire role and then you got to learn the bureaucracy of the municipality and you got to learn about where the bureaucracy and the hierarchy exists and you have to advance. And that's in any organization, right? But you got to, you got to learn that too. And that takes time, right? Thanks, Roy. Uh, Carol? Well, and I was going to sort of to loop it back to probably the vantage point listeners, you know, there's so much alignment to Roy's point around the municipalities. Uh, you know, yes, there are many Indigenous leaders within the nonprofit space, but it's often within Indigenous-led organizations. So if you are a new hire to a larger nonprofit that perhaps has not had that Indigenous liaison, um, we're often seeing VP or manager of Indigenous relations, that sort of thing, you're navigating boards that may not have any Indigenous leadership on it. You may be the only Indigenous person on staff. And that, again, can be very lonely and isolating as you're navigating not only a new environment, a new culture, a new sector that will bring all sorts of challenges and learning for yourself. You often tend to be leaned on to be a teacher to your colleagues and to a board. And you may not know sort of where to push where to really run uh, and to have somebody that has been in that space and can help you navigate how to move forward can be incredibly valuable um, to making someone feel you know, safe and, and retained within their position. Thanks, Carol. Um, and I just wanna, this is what's going, been going through my head as you've both been sharing on this point, the importance of having support to our leaders, whether, you know, it's, it is one of those almost a universal practice that, you know, we, we should be encouraging um, all of our leaders to consider is where, where is that network of relationship, of, um, of knowledge, of, of kind of getting used to not being the, the, the ones who know the answer. And that was kind of really where we started in some of your comments, Roy, around kind of modeling the way and, but the humility to, to, to know what else is that there is there is lots more to know um uh, so that has really resonated for me i am looking i will sort of begin to wind down here um roy has shared a, a, a really extensive list of resources that we'll make available on our podcast uh a web page uh and also uh, link over to harbor west consulting's resource pool um are there any other are, are there any of those that you've shared roy that you would really want to highlight in terms of a a high potential read or, or a resource that uh, you would encourage our listeners to connect with? 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I appreciate that opportunity. One that I always talk about in many of my facilitations is uh, the Reconciliation Manifesto by uh, Arthur Manuel and uh, Grand Chief Ronald Derrickson. They've done an absolutely excellent job of and in my opinion, it's it's an extremely foundational read on truth and reconciliation where they point it out. You know, they put the facts on the table for the reader and they allow you to enter in this journey to just like being open to some shock and awe that they're going to say about how our country has ran and functioned. So excellent and brilliant read. Another one I would recommend is uh, Medicine Unbundled by Gary Geddes. Um, he wrote he writes about the Indian hospitals and and one of my former professors and colleagues. Uh, the late Willie Misikinak is featured in that book with his stories. Well, one I heard as an undergraduate student. And and finally, there's the one that most people are aware of, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act by Bob Joseph. Absolutely must read, but it's on everyone's top 10 uh, list. He's, he's done an excellent job of really uncomplicating a very complicated document, policy document. But uh, the one I would uh, talk about is Clearing the Plains by James Daschuk. And I had the pleasure of working with James at the University of Regina while he was writing this book. And it really focuses on uh, the starvation policies by the federal government directed towards First Nations people. And it really delves into the draconian policies of the Indian Act, the impact and effects that those starvation policies and, and ration policies had on Indigenous communities, and still continue to inform much of those intergenerational traumatic effects that you see in families and communities today. And, and so excellent read. Those would be three that I would uh, highly recommend. Thanks so much, Roy. We'll make sure those links are, are available following the podcast. Uh, Carol, anything else you would like to add or, before we say goodbye to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, those are some of our very much the uh, recommendations that we uh, make it here at Harper West. But I'm also from podcast to podcast. I've, uh, I think maybe even thanks to Roy have have dove right into um, the Warrior Life podcast, which is incredible, um, as well as the Squeaky Wheel Métis podcast as well are two of the favorites that we've um, recently featured here at Harbor West. And if you like to learn by listening, those are the ones I've really dove into of late. Perfect. Thank you, Carol. Um, just before we head off um, our, to our listeners, um, you will have an opportunity to see Roy in action as part of our amazing presenter lineup for our annual leadership conference uh, called BOSS, Building Organizational and Sector Sustainability. Uh, we'll also be excited to have Harbor West Consulting as a, as a part of that, as, as one of our BOSS sponsors. Uh, the event's taking place November 15th to 16th, 2022 here. Um, Roy, any Thing you'd, you'd share briefly with our listeners in terms of what they might look forward to in, in your session at BOSS? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited to be part of the conference. And uh, my session will be on uh, connecting to Nokum's teachings, uh, developing a growth mindset. And really uh, what I mean by that is I'm going to go and I'm going to talk about my family, uh, my lived experience, but I'm going to talk about the teachings from my grandma and her sisters and, and her brothers and and really my elders that have really uh, created opportunity for me. But more importantly, my grandma really instilled a lot of the teachings from our family and instilled the history of our family into myself. And it's been something that has been, uh, 
uh, words can't describe, you know, how amazing that connection was. And, you know, her loss was definitely sad for our family. And so in any way that I get a chance to uh, talk about uh, my grandma, my nokum, you know, anytime I get a chance, um, I'm going to honor her legacy in that way. And so, you know, uh, folks that, you know, come on into the session, they're going to hear some of my grandma's anecdotes, some of her stories, uh, brilliant storyteller and had an amazing sense of humor. And they're going to really, I'm going to attach that to how we fix that to a growth mindset. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Roy. Thank you, Carol. Uh, Wishing you both well. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Maria. Appreciate it. That concludes our episode on truth and reconciliation in the workplace. Thank you again to Roy and Carol and Harbor West Consulting for their support of today's important discussion. For all of you listening in, Vantage Point is a not-for-profit organization based in Vancouver, BC, that works to uplift the province's not-for-profit sector and its leadership. You can learn more at thevantagepoint.ca on our website. Thank you again for listening in today, and I look forward to talking at you again next time.